looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Bobby, thank you for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. I'm Jeff Duoskin, and I am so glad you're here again with me. We've got an amazing show for you today. Mike Young, actor, director, writer, and comedian, hilarious comedian, is with us. I hope you caught some of the last few episodes. Amazing episodes, amazing episodes. Last week, Depressed Darth was here. I'm happy to report he's slightly less depressed now. He was so happy with all the positive feedback from the episode. Horace H.B. Sanders, not too long ago. David Landau. All these gems. Check them all out. All past 37 episodes of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. All can be found at jeffisfunny.com. That's right, jeffisfunny.com. What else can I do there, Jeff? Well, you can listen to all the episodes. There's links to where you can subscribe. You can join our mailing list. So much you can do. It's like a carnival of podcast land. So check that out. Tell your friends. If they don't know about the podcast, say, I love the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Your 2021 will not be complete without your own subscription. What's it cost? It's free. What? It's free? Yes, they're just giving it away. So thank you all for that. Speaking of thank yous, I want to thank Scott Curtis and Behind the Bits for having me as a guest on their show. You guys can check that out. LAAF with Jimmy McGammon. He was also on Crossing the Streams with me not too long ago, but I just made a guest appearance on his show. Tons of fun. I was also with Jason Taylor and the Three Geeks fandom on the Scene Snobs Network. Did a little fandom chat. Chatted up the monkeys. That's a good chat. You might want to check that out as well. Lots of great podcast to also check out not just live from detroit the jeff dewaskin show there's a plethora i said plethora of podcasts that are amazing out there and thank you to all of them who have had me on as a guest much appreciated and you know what else is much appreciated all of your support of the sponsors week after week after week i get calls i get letters i get emails i get texts from all the sponsors saying what's going on our sales are through the roof I said, oh, that's not surprising because I have the best listeners and fans in the world, in the world. And they're like, yes, yes, yes. But the problem is week after week, you guys buy so much of their product, they run out and I have to find a new sponsor. So here we are again. This week, I've luckily secured a new sponsor. This week's sponsor, Kitchen Tables. That's right. Kitchen Tables. Hey, do you have a spot in your kitchen? It's just a big empty area. Maybe you need a kitchen table. That's right. Kitchen tables are perfect for breakfast, lunch, and now also perfect for dinner. That's right. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's right. You can conveniently fit up to four to eight people around each table. That's right. Eat with all the people you know. More if you have other chairs that you can just shove into the corners. That's right. And each table now comes with four vertical legs. That's right. Four vertical legs are now included with every table. Maximum stability. That's right. No more glasses rolling off the table. No more plates sliding to their demise. With four legs, stability will never be an issue again. 
So check out your own kitchen table. You won't regret it. Wife and I, we just got a kitchen table. Yeah, after years of just sitting on the floor, we made the investment. And I got to tell you, it was one of the best investments we ever made. So I'm encouraging each and every one of you out there, if you have a kitchen, get yourselves a kitchen table. All right. Well, thanks again. I do appreciate everyone who supports our sponsors week after week. You help keep the lights on. And I appreciate that greatly. And now it's time for the social media tip. Here's a Twitter tip for y'all. If you want to be the greatest Twitterer ever, retweet other people. But here's the thing. When you push that retweet button, there's another thing there. It says, quote tweet. And you're like, quote tweet. That must be just as good as retweet. Because otherwise, why would they put it right next to retweet? And the answer is no. No, it's not. Retweet means you just share as is. Quote tweet means you put a little bit of your own information on top of it. So when it shows up on your timeline, they're really seeing your comments in relation to the other tweet. So really, if you're talking at the other tweet, maybe that's when you do it. But really, the other person isn't interested if you're if you're correcting or enhancing what they said, because they probably feel that they wrote it just fine when they wrote it. If you want to comment to people, just reply to their tweet. That's like the greatest way to just let someone know you saw their tweet and you had some kind of conversation you want to engage with them in. But quote tweeting, if you do both, retweet and then quote tweet, that's maybe okay. It really depends. Quote tweeting can be kind of tricky because usually it's for trolling. Like if it's a politician or someone says something you don't like, you might quote tweet it and yell at them on top of it. But otherwise, if if you see something great that you like, just retweet it. Don't quote tweet it. Keep it as is. Share it in its original form. It's kind of like you wouldn't buy an art piece and then uh, kind of draw and put your own little drawing on top of it. Oh, look, uh, the Mona Lisa is now holding a lollipop. Didn't I make it better? No. No, you did not. And that's the social media too. Just a quick reminder to everyone that I have a live show every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube, the Jeff Tawaskin channel, also on Facebook Live, facebook.com slash Jeff is funny. We go live with a show called Crossing the Streams. Amazing TV streaming suggestions from myself and a bunch of my very funny friends. It's a great one-hour show, and we invite you to check it out. But right now, I want you to focus on this amazing conversation I had with Mike Young. All right, I'm here with Mike Young, stand-up comedian, director, writer, actor. He's done everything. Hilarious guy from Detroit, Michigan, now living in L.A. Welcome to the show, Mr. Mike Young. Jeff Dwoskin, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been a long time. We've known each other a long time. Yeah, I live in L.A., and I took off on Memorial Day, and I haven't, I haven't been back since. And I don't know when I'm going back. <laughs> well, a couple of times you've been back. You used to do the Young American Comedy, Comedy Tour. Tour. You had me a couple times on it here in the Detroit area. It was my first brush with fame. You had Bobby Lee and Steve Renzinski. Did I say his last name right? Absolutely not. <laughs> you say it. <laughs> it's, it's Steve, Steve Renzinski. There you go. Yeah, and Bobby Lee. We came back to Detroit like four times probably. You were with us probably twice. Yeah, you were great, was, man. Thank you. Thank you. I do, yeah. have a, I do have a funny story, which you probably don't know, but I'll share with you now. So you were coming to Detroit for one of the shows, and your mom and my stepmom were friends. And so she says to me, Jeff, I have someone who wants you on their comedy show. And I said, who? 
And she says, Mike Binder. I go, Mike Binder? I go, yeah. She says, yes. I go, really? And he goes, yeah. I go, the director of Indian Summer, that Mike Binder? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, I need a VHS tape, right? <laughs> the other famous comedian, Mike from Detroit. <laughs> yo, leave, yo, leave it up to the Jewish mom geography communication line to get that twisted. Right, exactly. It's funny because at the time I wasn't familiar with Mad TV. I had no idea who Bobby Lee was. He stripped down on the show, I think, to his underwear. He was crazy. Still does. Steve was super cool. I remember him being like, yep. oh, if you're ever in L.A., you know, give me, you know. And then Steve was the first time I ever, after we that show, and I'm sitting there watching, I guess I, I can admit watching this in the movie theater, Paul Blart, Mall Cop. He's in it. And I turn to the person next to me. I'm like, I know that guy. How do I? <laughs> That was, yeah, like the, that was like the first time that happened to me where I was like, so one of the people I knew, and then I saw him like on the big screen right after. That was that was a hoot. We and, had a strong, uh, strong lineup, man. Bobby Lee, Rena Zizi, Burt Kreischer, Sebastian, Brett Ernst, Joey Diaz. We just, Sam Tripoli, every one of those guys. Everyone's gone on to be big comedians, some bigger than others, but I mean, they're all successful dudes in movie, TV, so... It's funny, man. You just, I, I kind of create, I think I told you this before, but like I, I created a Young American Comedy Tour while on the patio at the comedy store, just literally hanging out with those guys. And I'm thinking to myself, how are we not like, like none of us were like, no one had like any real fame or celebrity. Nobody, we were all like bubbling under in our own worlds, but we were all funny. And so I kept I kept hearing that the uh, Kings of Comedy Tour made like $16 million that year. D.L. Hughley, Bernie Mac, Cedric the Entertainer, they were all huge comedians. So I'm sitting on the patio of the comedy store and my entrepreneurial business brain kicks in. And I'm like, if those guys made $16 million and they are famous at the time, then we have to at least be like worth like $3 million. Like we're not $16 million less funny than those guys. We are all very funny and can hold it down. And I just literally was had like this epiphany and and went right to work. And I was like, I just wrote down like a treatment on a piece of paper. I asked everybody if they'd be into doing a tour. And I went to the owner of all the improvs, like the, the booker of the improvs, Aaron. And I, I went to her office and I had a list of the comedians that were going to be on the tour. Steve Byrne, all those guys. Within like an hour, she just gave me like 10 offers of comedy clubs to go do like Tempe, San Jose, Phoenix, LA, in, uh, Brea, Ontario, Irvine. She just listed like 10 and 10 offers right away. And so I started like doing, I was like, guys, we got, we got to do a photo shoot. So I got everyone together. We did like photo shoots and like we merchandise. And, you know, I didn't have like a lot of business savvy, Jeff, I'll be honest at the time I would just put it together and it was just an idea and it ran for like three straight years. And we all, it was great and the most fun ever. You know, you look back on like your businesses and moves that you've made and you kind of think like, oh man, I could have done this. I could have done that. And I truly should have, I should have just said to everybody, let's all own this together and just all work as hard as it's the same. You know, we'll all work the same, you know, we'll all work hard at this instead of like me putting this thing together and like trying to wake up Bobby Lee at six in the morning to get to radio and trying to get Sebastian to, you know, get out of bed and do his hair. It was just like, 
you know, looking back, you you know you would have made some different moves, but I'm proud of that tour and it still comes up to this day. And I found like 50 Young American Comedy Tour shirts that were at my brother's house. Literally, I'm going to like re-up that tour in some fashion. Like we can't afford Sebastian anymore. He's on another planet. Unless he wants to just buy it. For, he could just own the tour and then just, he could just do it. <laughs> you know, it was a lot of fun, man. It was just a thing of, it was just like, yo, why don't we just do something with our friends who are funny? And every time we came to Detroit, you killed it. You, you were you were in Detroit, and it was a it's a tough thing to decide. Do I want to go to L.A. and try to make this happen? But I always admired you because you had the skills to do it if you really wanted to dig in and do it. But you decided to be a man and and raise be, have a family and be normal. You know what I mean? Because this shit will get you killed. I I always think like I started so late doing doing comedy, so I had the family, I had the kids. I didn't I didn't I couldn't afford to not make the money. It was always like a really I, I don't want to even it's it was more than a hobby because I I pretty much ignored most family. I skipped family events. I for, for those first years, I mean, like it was I was doing it like five times. I mean, in Detroit, that's a lot, but like uh, five times a not a week. You know, it was like. It came before family events. It came before bar mitzvahs. <laughs> I like, I like when I can only go to the service. I can't go to the party. I got a, I got a forgotten harvest benefit I'm doing. And so it's, you know, it's just crazy. But I got to say, like, I'm always happy that I maybe didn't know who Steve and Bobby were going into that because it probably would have intimidated me. Uh. Now, after the fact that I have the picture of you and them and all of us together, it's always easier. Like I worked with Patrice O'Neill once. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Legend. I didn't know who Patrice O'Neill was when I worked with him. He was amazing. And I started listening to Opie and Anthony afterwards. If I had known who Patrice O'Neill was, I probably would have been such a nervous wreck. <laughs> and it was just like, um, but he was great. And uh, Bobby and all them, I remember they were great. They were like looking at me like, who's this guy? <laughs> but uh, but they were really cool. And yeah, thankfully, I did, I did well. So it was like, I think they respected that. Thank you for all of that. Of course, man. I remember Bobby, you know, the, the casinos had opened in Detroit at the time. So Renazizi was off gambling. As soon as he got his money, he was off gambling. Bobby Lee was in the streets till three o'clock in the morning. Nobody could find him. And it was just, we had a lot of fun, man. A lot of fun. It was always, Tony Rock was part of it. It was always just about, let's just do a great show. And then everybody can go do whatever they want afterwards. When we would go to different cities, we'd bring two or three guys, three guys usually, and then we'd have a local, you know, comedian. And it's funny, man, you realize how hard stand-up comedy actually is when you go to all these cities and you go, there's actually not, there's only two funny dudes in this town. There's not a lot of funny guys. And thanks for holding it down when we came to Detroit, man. You know, it was a, a great time. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. I, I thought about re-upping the tour and then I always let it just go but every like four months i get like emails and messages from like people that saw us 10 years ago literally and they're like come on you coming back it's like no it's over sebastian <laughs> sells out the madison square garden three nights in a row call him i think it would do well now people love like the opportunity to go out and see i think multiple people like i always love going to comedy cellar in new york right so whenever we're just on vacation because it was like when you can see these powerhouses doing just 20 minutes each it's just great to walk away with you know the, all the fillers gone everyone just brings their their aa game and like it's just a great show and it's like to be able to then hear because then not every comedian resonates with everybody exactly the same way right so if you'd be like oh i love sebastian oh i thought mike young was the best right i mean how many times after a show there like, people come up to you and they go you were the best one mike right and but 
they they go some them different goes up to each person and goes you were the best one <laughs> you know what I mean? so it's like i think it's good to offer that i think i think that was what was a part of the specialness of the show that was the point of the whole thing the point was everybody's got a different style there's going to be something for everybody and i named it young american comedy tour because we just we had an Italian, we had a Jew, we had an Asian kid, we had an Irish kid. We just, we were, you know, we had a Middle Eastern kid on the tour. We just, it was just a melting pot of what I thought represented everything we had. Meanwhile, everybody else was like, yo, man, that was so smart. You put your name in the title. I swear, I didn't even think of my name when I did Young American Comedy Tour. It, like, literally, it wasn't, that wasn't why I said, that wasn't why we named it that. But we had a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, now Live Nation would have to pay a ton of money for that tour. If and when we come back. You will come back. You will come yeah. back. Yeah. All right. So Sebastian's off selling out Madison Square Garden, but you've done some awesome things too. You've written and directed a couple movies, right? Yeah. Uh, My Man is a Loser, a stand-up guy. Tell me about that. Tell me like, because those, you, you didn't just write those. I like no, to talk I, about Adam too. You wrote Adam with Aaron Paul. Talk to us about like My Man is a Loser. That's with John Stamos. And then you did explore stand-up comedy and a stand-up guy, which is about a mobster. Right. Yeah. Kind of comedy. Tell us about those writing and directing. As far as writing goes, you start to see as a writer that like a lot of similar themes keep popping up in your life, like or in my movies, you know, like things I'm trying to obviously work out myself. So my man is a loser. I wrote because at the time, you know, I I was going through like a real single run. All my buddies were married, and I thought just I just always had this idea of like. My buddies who were married at the time, they just seemed lost. They were just like, my wife is doing this. They were kind of complaining about the married life. And I was always giving them advice on like what, how they could just be a little bit better. So the simple idea for my man as a loser was single guy gives his married buddies advice to help them get their marriages back on track. That was a simple concept. And that was the seed of where I wrote that from. The movie itself, you know, I was on path. I was on a stand up path and always writing on the side and I hadn't directed anything. So my whole life was like stand up, stand up on the road, on the road, in the hotel, writing, writing. And then uh, these producers, just to tell you how the movie came about, these producers out of New York, they actually went to Doug Allen, the creator of Entourage. And they were friends of Doug's. And they said, you know, we want to hire you, Doug, to write this movie. And we really want to get in the business or try to figure out how, and do you have time to write anything? And Doug's like, no, but I have a really funny friend and a good writer, Mike Young. So Doug introduced me to these guys and they're, you know, they were great guys. They were finance guys out of New York and they thought they wanted to be in the business and they wanted to be in the business. So they were, I'd never really dealt with like finance, New York, Wall Street vibe before, right? I'm just, you know me, I'm Southfield. I'm all about the story, <laughs> get it going. I don't want to hear, you know, I don't do the Wall Street thing really. These guys come to me. I meet him at a deli in LA. The guy sits down. He's like, you know, do you have any ideas for a movie? And I can tell you about my life because we had thought about like an idea for us. This guy starts talking about how like he could tell a stripper his life story, but he can't talk to his own wife. So I was like, you know what, man, I have something in that lane. I said, let me get back to you in a week. And I'm going to give you an outline of a bullet point outline of what I think this movie should be. A week later, I send them, I email them what I think the movie should be. And it's the idea that I already have in my pocket you know, for my man as a loser. And right away, these guys are like, that's it. We're going to raise the money. We're going to go make a movie. I'm thinking Hollywood, everybody talks like that. Everyone's raising money. They're all looking for money. So 
So I don't get involved in the money raising. I'm just holding firm and I'm like, this is a great idea for a movie. And they start calling me. They're like, we got our first million in, it's in escrow. It's in the bank. We're going to get rolling. We're going to make this movie. I'm like, wow. So they hire me first to write the script. So I write the script. They love it. And then I start to think about, you know, then it's getting very real. So now they got the monies in the bank. I have to move to New York because we're going to shoot the movie in New York. These guys are based in New York. And now we start coming up with casting ideas. And so I'm really truncating a long version of the story. But I started to just, you know, when you write characters, you have voices in your head, specific characters. And like, I was always a fan of Michael Rappaport as an actor. And I just knew he was hilarious. And I had this like kind of bumbling, this sort of bumbling lost husband with his voice in my mind. And I didn't really know him well, but I knew people that knew him. So I called somebody who was in Rappaport's camp. I said, we have the money. I love Rappaport. He doesn't have to audition. I just want him to read the script and see if he's in. Send Rappaport the script. I get a call a week later. He loved the script. He wanted to meet for lunch. He was, he was on a juice cleanse at the time. So I meet him in a juice bar. Hollywood shit. I meet Rappaport at a juice, at a juice bar. And we hang out and he's like, dude, I love this. I'm in. Who are, who are you? I'm like, we actually played basketball together like a couple of years ago. He's like, oh, I kind of remember you, slow-footed Jewish kid. I'm like, yeah, you too. <laughs> and we totally bonded, signed him up for the movie. And then these guys, all their wives were like in love with Stamos. And so I didn't know John Stamos at the time, but I knew Bob Saget because Bob and I had toured together and he worked on Entourage when I had an office there. So I got the script to Stamos' camp and same thing. Stamos responded to the lead role playing Mike, you know, my, my character basically. So I meet Stamos. He wants to have lunch and talk about this potential movie that he's talking about wants to do. And so I go to this newsroom cafe and in walks Stamos in the middle of the day in sunglasses and perfect hair and olive skin and a shirt buttoned down to his belly button like he's Keith Richards' son. And we sit down and he's like, I love this character. I can play this character. I've been single, you know, for years before I got married and blah, blah, blah. And that was kind of how the ball started rolling. And so I got Stamos locked in. I got Rappaport. And the next weekend, I'm going to do comedy in Miami with Brian Callen. And so I'm hanging out with Brian Callen in Miami. I'm opening for, I'm featuring for Callen. He's headlining. And we're in the coffee shop and I'm like, Brian, this is going to sound crazy, but I think I have a movie that's actually going to go and you'd really be great for like the third lead. There's a character that's just, you You know, I'm like, Brian, you're like the funniest dude in regular life that I know. I, I'm going to write this to your voice. And he's like, whatever, bro. Everybody says they have a movie, blah, blah, blah. You know, he doesn't believe a thing I'm saying. And I don't really believe what I'm saying. So Callum's like, just send me the script. So we have breakfast in Miami. I email him the script. At the show that night, Callan shows up, I think it's that night at the show. He's like, dude, what's up? I'm in. I'll audition. I'll put myself on tape. I'm like, no, bro. I think I'm actually, I can call the shot on this one. I'm like, I think I could just get the okay. So Rappaport, Stamos, and Callan don't have to audition at all. I just write, I, I just, I lock them in. My guys agree to Brian Callan, even though they didn't really know who he was at the time, but they did their research and saw that he was funny. He had been on some shows and blah, blah, blah. I locked them in. The funniest is I had never directed anything before, man. Nothing. Not even like a video in college. My, the producers are like, okay, now we have to actively go find a director. So immediately I'm like, no way. I could direct this. 
I'm like, I, I could direct this. I read a ton of stories about like Barry Levinson, Woody Allen, Tarantino, all these guys who come from like a stand-up background and had like transitioned into the directing game just because they wanted control of their writing. I basically went to Doug Allen, who connected me to these guys. I said, Doug, you got to vouch for me that I could direct this movie because these guys are going to start looking for a director. So Doug calls them and Doug's like, 100% Mike could direct this easily. And they signed me up as the director for the movie. And we didn't look any further. And immediately, man, I started reading books on directing. I bought like Playboy interview of every director. I read every interview of like Woody Allen's and how he started directing. And that was it, man. And, and they signed me up. And that's how that movie came to be. And we shot it in New York. And we casted all the other parts out of New York. And it was an unbelievable experience. And it was a $5 million independent film, which is a lot of money. Looking back, I think we probably could have made that movie for three under $5 million. We probably could have made that movie for $2 million. But my guys were like these like I said, like these Wall Street, New York, you know, big money thinking guys, they got egos and they're like, Stamos wants a trailer. We'll give them a trailer. Rappaport wants a trailer. We'll give them a trailer. Listen, they overpaid me for the movie. I felt overpaid. I learned so much. It's not even funny because then when I did my next movie, I was just moving through it. You know, I was just moving through it fast. And it, it let me, because you don't know what you're learning while you're learning it right. until you go and reapply. And so My Man is a Loser, we shot it and Lionsgate bought it. I'm proud of the movie. I haven't watched the movie since it came out because every scene, I'm, I'm, I'm psychotic like that. I'm like, every, everything I see in it, I go, that could have been better if we would have done this. I can't believe I didn't use that music. I should have done, you know, I beat myself up a lot because there were things I thought I could have done better. And it was my first movie. Listen, man, I didn't even know the cameras couldn't zoom. I told my DP, zoom in on Stamos. He's like, dude, this is a $400,000 camera. They don't zoom. We change lenses <laughs> and uh, it takes about 20 minutes. So I learned a lot. I had the greatest time doing it. An incredible amount of work to write and direct. It taxes your system and you got to stay hydrated. 24-hour job because every night you're going home and you're realizing like, like I realized like, oh my God, Rappaport is so funny that if I... If I don't rewrite some stuff for him tomorrow, I'm missing out on the potential comedy that I have with this guy. So I would be writing every night. I'd be rewriting stuff. The actors don't love when you do that, obviously. I try not to do that anymore because it's just pressure on them. But like, it's really tough when you know you could write a better joke or, you, you know, or something you can fit into the storyline that you can do for the next day. It's hard to let that go. Is that why a lot of directors, you think, work with the same people over and over again? Because they can learn their voice and then they can actually build on what you were just saying? I think it's because they learn their voice. And I think if you can find a community of like talented people that you get along with that make great art together, why? I mean, I'm always open to other people. And like, it's there's nothing cooler than when you find another actor who like you never heard of or have never seen before. And they're like, Oh my God, this guy just blew us, blew us away. We got to work together. But I think they work with the same people for comfort level and for talent level. And it's just, you know, you find a community, it's, you know, it's, you look at Will Ferrell's movies and they got a lot of the same, you know, John C. Riley's in them all the time. And they got the right. same guys are in them. And Sandler does Sandler puts his camp together combination of comfort. And they found the recipe that worked. 
so that movie was just, and we had Tika Sumter in it and she went on to do the show Grownish, and she's like a big TV star now. And a lot of people, Sean Young was in it. Who, oh, I, really? loved, who I loved showed up like the first day. She's like, I brought your horoscope. She was way out there. She's like, I got your birth date and I got your horoscope. You're going to be doing great things in the next four years. This is the first day I ever met her. <laughs> Gotta love people like that. That's amazing. Oh, she rolled in like straight hippie. She was very cool. Yeah, man. Are there things I would have done differently? A hundred of them. But I learned so much and it got me to my next movie, a stand-up guy. And it happened quite quickly. Even though, you know, it took me out of the stand-up game. It took me out of stand-up for, for you know, I started writing and directing and I got on this train that kind of has been going, went for like five years. You know, a movie takes about a year out of your life. You know, yeah, they say, you know, six weeks here and only 30 days here and then six weeks. Po- but it actually is like almost a year to, of just like focus. So it took me out of stand up. Then a stand up guy. So we had the premiere of My Man is a Loser in New York City. We have the premiere and it goes great, even though I'm ready to throw up. I'm not. I'm so nervous. People are a full theater of people are watching my movie. I'm freaking out. I'm not even sitting down for the movie. I'm like standing in the back, praying that every time there's a joke, they laugh at the right time. So I'm like, I'm nervous as can be. Plus, I got Stamos. He's next to me nervous. And he's talking the whole time. He's like, oh, this, this, this work. That, that, that scene worked. That worked. I'm like, dude, you're killing me. Just stop. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's killing me. And so after the premiere of a stand, of My Man is a Loser... All of a sudden, there's a guy, a friend, Danny A is his name, that I've known for years who had just recently gotten into the film business of producing. He, ha- I don't even know that he's at my premiere. He comes up to me after my premiere and he's with one of his finance guys. And he's like, Mike. And he's like a hustler type of, and he's a funny dude. And he's like, Mike, we loved your movie. This is Ron. He finances my films. We want to do a comedy with you. And I'm like, really? He tells me this at the premiere party at the after party for my premiere so i'm like there's no way that after that movie i'm just gonna right away get another movie and right away i got a stand-up guy so it was just it was luck and it was i did a good enough job on on my man as a loser that they wanted to make an independent comedy with me and so a stand-up guy came my way but it came i convinced them to do the idea for a stand-up guy that i had they wanted to do a totally different idea they they had an idea and he's like, I got this great idea about a college basketball player who, wait, he's way past his prime and blah. He starts telling me the story. And I'm like, I have a great idea. I have the idea of a gangster going into the witness protection program who does stand up on a dare and becomes accidentally famous. And he's like, that's a great idea. We're going to do your idea. So then a stand up guy happened. Had to move back. I, you know, I'd come back to LA to where I'm. Um, based out of and I stayed there for whatever five six months but then next thing I know boom they got me an apartment in New York and I'm back to New York to go make a stand-up guy and we really casted a stand-up guy fully out of New York and sadly enough my good friend who was a star of the movie Nick Cordero who passed away recently from complications of this whole COVID thing he was on the cover of People magazine I I casted him in in that movie I can't even say that I casted him because my producer and lead called me one day and he goes, I just saw this guy on Broadway. He's a star. You have to cast him in the movie. And I did. And Nick played a lead in a stand-up guy and he was incredible and he was super talented. You know, I don't want to go down the, 
the sad path, you know, but rest in peace to Nick. So sad what happened, you know. It's a tragedy, yeah. Though that we, I was following that story too. It's so I can't so even sad. So sad. Yeah. He just had a kid, and it was just he was such a star on the rise. It was star on the rise, and equally, if not more, of a gentleman type of guy. He just was like a sweet dude, and he's hilarious in a stand-up guy. So for anyone listening, go watch a stand-up guy and just watch what he does. And like, you know, we, we improv a couple scenes and I don't like to do that, go off book. But there's this scene where, you know, he's a gangster. He's one of the gangsters that's going after, he's going after the lead mob guy who is ratted on everybody. He's become famous, which is against the mob rules. <laughs> and he's going after him. But it's obviously, it's a ridiculous comedy. And he's also, he's jealous of him. He's jealous that he's becoming famous and he's funny. And he's like, I was always the funny one in school. How did he? I was the talented one. And one of the gangsters is like, what are you talking about? And all of a sudden, Nick just bursts out in song. And we, had, we came up with that idea that morning. Because I was like, you know what, Nick? You could sing. You're a great... He's like, he was a Broadway star, singer, Tony nominated. And so he could sing. So I'm like, we got to utilize this. So it was just a case of having a talent on set and you have to utilize their talent if, if it fits the part. And he was incredible. That's how a stand-up guy came about. It came about from those guys seeing my man as a loser. And I had a great time making a stand-up guy. A lot of good, healthy battles because my finance guy was my lead. So he, he paid for the movie. And I was like, okay, so you have to deal with certain things in the independent film world, if something like that comes your way. And he was, and he, and he was great. Danny A's been, he was an Irishman. He's in mob town. He's been in 10 movies already and he's great, but he was my boss and my friend, which can create tension in the world. Those are great stories. The, where, where are these streaming now? Where can, where can we watch? Now they're, now they're both on Amazon prime and they're on uh, Tubi. And all you gotta do is like go search both of them, but Amazon prime for sure. And uh, a stand-up guy was was on Netflix for a year and a half. So it was great to have my movie. Netflix bought it, actually. And that was a great lesson in it does not cost. And I tell anyone who's like getting in the business or thinking about making something, it doesn't cost any money to write funny. And it doesn't cost any money to write. But if you're in the in indie world, you have to think about your budget. You have to think about if you think you're being loose and you're writing an airplane into your scene, you just cost yourself $100,000. If you're in a moving car, you just have to know that us putting a, a, a mount on the car is around five, dollars $6,000. In the independent world, I actually liked the restrictions of only having eight hundred grand or a million dollars in a stand-up guy that I know I had to work with. So I had to write to that. So I, it was a lot of dialogue-driven comedy, and we utilized you know, one location for multiple locations. And you really learn about budgeting and can you know and and how to write within the parameters of what you have and then you know hopefully i'll just i'll, I'll keep on that trajectory but it's funny because stand-up is really like a love of mine it is like i love stand-up i don't want to say more than writing and directing but maybe more i just love the idea of writing something down putting it on stage let's see if it flies i just love it and so I got out of the stand-up game for a sec, but the last couple of years, I've been back strong. My special, I'm actually about to sign a deal with Comedy Dynamics for my special, which is already done. It's in the can. So That's great. Yeah, you'll get... 
I can't yeah. wait to see that. <laughs> I'll send it to you, man. I got a link. I want to see what you think, actually. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. I would love to see it. That'd be great. Yeah, One I of the perks of being a famous podcast host, I get to see Mike Young's special before all of you guys. <laughs> You're going to yo, Jeff, I really, I do. I want to send it to you, see what you think. I, I did something different, you know. Chris Rock had said something funny a few months back. He's like, every comedian says they got a special, but none of them are like special. They're just you doing stand up on a stage somewhere. Let me see. A, so I, I put some scripted narrative interstitialed within my stand up. And I, I think it works. Hope people dig it. And you'll, uh, you'll give me your honest opinion. I'm basically bulletproof. There's another movie of yours called Adam. This movie's been in production, or at least moving along for quite a while. This, because um, I remember, I remember specifically this movie. Uh, I'll let you explain who it is, but it's starring Aaron Paul, and Aaron Paul is Jesse from Breaking Bad. Yeah. And the, what I remember most about it was hearing about you doing this movie, and then Je- Aaron Paul won the uh, Emmy. Emmy. And I'm like, yeah. well, and I remember th- I'm sitting there thinking. Oh man, Mike Young scored big on that to get the guy before he became, you know, <laughs> like rocketed off. And so I thought that, was, but that was that's been a bit. So it's been it's been a process. I'm excited yeah. to hear that it's coming out. It's a it's a real heartwarming story about a very courageous young man. If you want to kind of just give a quick thing, and then I'd like to talk to about your uh, your Ficto show. Yeah. So Adam, the movie itself has had probably seven names. I wrote that movie even before I shot my man as a loser. So crazy enough, sometimes these movies, and you hear stories all the time, you know, we shot this movie six years ago. What happened to it? It took us years to get this thing off. It was one of those situations. And the way Adam happened, and thank God it is finally coming out. But that movie, I was a writer knocking around. I had sold a few shows before, you know, My Man is a Loser ever happened. And I get a call one day from my brother, who is hanging out at a bar in Detroit with Adam Niskar. And Adam Niskar is a kid that we grew up with who had a tragic accident, who became quadriplegic, who had an incredible attitude about his life at this point and was just like an inspiration to so many people. And my brother calls me and he goes, they're thinking about making a movie about Adam's life and Dan Gilbert's talking about producing it. Dan Gilbert's the owner of Quicken Loans and the Cavaliers and I don't know Dan at the time. So I say that. And, and my brother's with Adam, who I know because I played baseball with his brother growing up. And Adam was a kid in the neighborhood who I knew. And so I say, this is incredible. What are you thinking? And he tells me that he wrote a journal about his life. Would I read it? And then if I spark to it, let's talk to Dan Gilbert and see what the next steps are. He sends me his journal. It's like 500 pages. It's a real book. So Adam sends me the journal. And I read this journal, Jeff, and I'm not kidding. It's a freaking bestseller waiting to happen. It's the funniest, most tragic shit I've read. Like, it's like in the vein of Confederacy of Dunces, if you know what that book is. That book was ended up winning like Pulitzer Prize for fiction, yet was sitting on a desk, on you know, not published for years. This thing was incredible. I read it. I call my brother. I say, get me back in touch with Adam. I talked to Adam. I said, dude, this movie is Juno in a wheelchair. This is Little Miss Sunshine type of movie in a wheelchair. This is hilarious and sad. I'm in. He puts me on the phone the next week with Dan Gilbert. We have a conference call. I talked to Dan. I said, this is how I see this movie. This is a tragic comedy about a guy's journey from being a wild man to tragedy to redemption. We talk. He says, I'm going to bring you to Detroit. 
Dan Gilbert fly, he flies me to Detroit on like a Delta airline, or whatever. I go home, I go home, my home. I go home, I go to Quicken Loans offices. Dan's on the 10th floor at the time. I go up, I'm sitting in a conference room, basically by myself waiting. In comes Dan and we start talking and he's from Southfield where I'm from. And I always, obviously he's famously well-known as like an incredible businessman and he's rebuilt Detroit almost, almost single-handedly. So I know about him, but I don't know him. So we start talking in the conference room and we start talking about like, I know like his friend's little sisters that I went to school with. And it it becomes an hour of chit chat, small talk, laughter. We're just laughing. And then we get down to business. And I say, you know, I, I basically pitch him how I see the movie. Dan stands up, just straight up guy. And he just stands up. He shakes my hand. He's like, you got the job. He's like, I want, I'm going to hire you to write this movie. I'll call your lawyer tomorrow. He goes, and in the meantime, the Cavs are playing the Supersonics in Seattle if you want to hop on my plane. <laughs> and then we're playing the Clippers, and you can, we'll just drop you off in L.A. So next thing I know, I'm basically I'm on a, I'm on a private G5 with, with Adam. Adam is in a wheelchair that, that weighs 7,000 pounds, and we get him onto the plane. In his, we take Adam with us on this trip, and we spend a weekend, go to the Seattle game. We go to the Clipper game. We have the greatest weekend and it's game on. And next thing I know, within a month, my deal to write it is signed and that's it. We don't have a director yet. I write the movie and I'll just be honest with you. I wrote the movie and I thought to myself, this is, I, I'm going to win the Oscar. Like, this is the best thing I've ever written. I thought that I wrote the best piece ever. And then Dan gets, his brother involved and some LA guys involved and the movie starts to t- drag. It starts to take a longer time without going too much into detail of what it is, you know, how tormenting it could be. And when you lose control of a movie, cause I wasn't the director and they never intended me. And I didn't even think about directing it actually until something funny happened. And it's not funny, but I'll tell you what happened. So I write the movie. We start to get things in order. We're going to cast this movie. I'm friends with Emil Hirsch, the actor Emil Hirsch. So I'm thinking Emil Hirsch would be great to play Adam. I send Emil the script. He hits me back soon. He's like, I love this. I'm in. So now Emil Hirsch is in. So I tell Gary Gilbert, who's the producer of the movie also with Dan, I said, we got to sign up Emil Hirsch. So we got Emil Hirsch on the hook. Something happens to his schedule. I'm on an airplane. No joke. I'm on it. I had never seen Breaking Bad at the time. It's like a hit show. It is a hit show, not like a hit show. It's a huge show. You know, I'm on an airplane. The woman next to me is watching Breaking Bad on her computer. I'm just kind of like sneaking. I'm like sneaking in looks. I'm just like looking at the screen, doing what nobody wants to do. Sneak, you know, look over someone's shoulder. I see Aaron Paul. I don't even hear the, I swear, I don't even hear the audio really. I can like faintly hear it out of her earphones. Aaron Paul is in this scene where he's like crying and fighting and like wrestling and dramatic and he's with Cranston. It's a scene with Brian Cranston. And I'm like, this dude would be great to play Adam if we lose Emil Hirsch. I land, I call the producers of the movie. I said, you got to go look at this kid, Aaron Paul. And one of the producers was like, of course I know Aaron Paul, but I love Breaking Bad. Long story short, they get it to Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul signed on to play the lead and we start the process. And we, we're going to shoot it in Detroit because Dan wants to shoot everything in, De- in Detroit. The crew comes to Detroit. We cast Aaron Paul, Jeff Daniels, 
Lena Olin, Tom Berenger, incredible cat. Michael Weston, amazing cast. And you know, we shoot the movie in Detroit. Side note is I spent a lot of time with Adam just to understand how he was living before I wrote the movie. And so I got a vibe on just kind of how he, you know, I just got as much information as I could with him. You know, he was driving the van on his own with his fingers and he was a super inspirational dude. We shot the movie. We put the movie in the can. The original director had a mental meltdown. In the middle of filming, I get a phone call from the producers. They found the director roaming the streets of Detroit at four o'clock in the morning, yelling obscenities out to random people. And now he's going into a mental institution. He got put in a white jacket and shipped off to wherever he was living. I'm not going to even tell you his name because it doesn't matter. They were scrambling for a director. I tried to be the director. That would have been my first movie, but they weren't having it. Dan's like, I ain't putting $5 million into this, into you, who's never been behind a camera. So they went and got Mike Uppendahl. From, he directed a bunch of Mad Men episodes, super talented guy. He comes to town with his little crew. And he's got like his, his two writer buddies that are high level writers in Hollywood. So they come in, they, they change up the script a little bit, which happens all the time. There was a moment and I got to just, I, I'll be honest with you because why not? I'm just trying to be honest with everything. You know, it was, it was torturous to have them like, cha- it was torture. They were like, they were changing a lot of things in the script that I thought should have stayed I had a lot of fights with the producers, with Gary Gilbert and, and, you know, not, not Dan. Dan and I were kind of on a team. At the end of the day, everybody just really does want to make a great movie. And I've had to like learn to tame myself and like kind of control my emotions when it comes to the creative process when making a movie. And that's what I love about stand up is you write your stuff, you put it out. Nobody can mess with you. When you write a movie and they hire you, they have the option of rewriting you. That was my first lesson, like getting some having some guys come in and rewrite what I thought was I was passionate about. I made some mistakes. I said some things to people that, you know, offended people. I got fired a couple of times. I got brought back. <laughs> I got brought back in. At the end of the day, the movie's in the can. It took a long time to get out because Adam had a lot of health issues. He had since, he since passed away and things happen. Cut to six years later, five years later, whatever. The movie is coming out. I'm a writer and executive producer of the movie. I'm proud of it. I don't have the emotional maturity to go watch it again because I'll just snap again. I'll just, I got to go see a therapist to figure out how to deal with that. That being said, the movie's coming out and it was a lot harder work than my other two movies, you know, because there was just so many moving parts and people coming in and changing what I wrote. And that's it. I'll stand by the fact that I thought I wrote something incredible and it got trimmed up a little bit. But you live and you learn, man. It ain't easy making a movie. It's hard as a comedian. Your words are important. It's all you got. Gary Gilbert, which you kind of just mentioned briefly, Gary Gilbert also was behind Garden State, The Kids Are All Right, and most recently, the one that I'm sure everyone is aware of, La La Land. Big names you're kind of just elbowing around with. So awesome for you. That's really good. Yeah. I wish I would have known that when I was doing it, that there were big names. Cause I, probably <laughs> wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have said some of the things that I said, but I'm passionate about what I do, man. And Gary's, and Gary's a great guy. Gary's awesome. And we talk and going through it and people are changing what you do. You, you're in the heat of the moment. And things happen. But at the end of the day... Gary knows what he's doing. He's made some successful, very successful films. And that's the way, that's it. 
But I got to say, just as a funny full circle moment, when his producing partner thought he won the Oscar for La La Land and had to give it back because Moonlight won, I was the happiest guy in the world. That was one of the craziest moments. Craziest ever. moments ever. And he handled it well, I got to be honest. It should it should have won, to be honest. I mean, La La Land, I love that movie. I can yeah, La La Land was great. Let's wrap up with Ficto. Ficto, it's sort of, uh, it's one of those apps, like Quibi, that has short form video. Yeah. You worked with Kevin Connolly. He directed you. You wrote. Kevin Connolly is E from Entourage. So, uh, so that's pretty cool. Bob Saget's one of the co-stars. So you've worked with Bob, John Stamp. You've pretty much worked with the entire crew except David Coulet. So maybe uh, maybe uh, you can reach out to him. I, I've worked with him once. He was, nice guy. He was a super cool, super cool guy. You're super super cool. cool guy. So everyone download the Ficto app. It, the show is called Who the F is Mike Young? Yeah. <laughs> it's basically just about you being single in LA, right? And interspersed with some comedy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's more, it, well, it's kind of like an esoteric search for meaning. Yeah, I mean, which is my BS way of saying, yeah, it's me navigating being single in LA and looking for love in all the wrong places. I had directed a short film called Single Mike. And everybody who was watching it was like, this is a great concept. And I had even sold it as a concept to HBO. And then they didn't make the show. So I got the idea back in my possession. And I just always wanted to do something with it. And I'll just, I'll wrap it up as quickly as I can for you, but basically, and this is a crazy story. I was opening for Sebastian at the Pantages Theater in Los Angeles. And I'm opening for Sebastian. It's, it's a great show. And it's, I'm in front of 7,000 people, whatever this Pantages holds. Incredible show. One of many that I opened for him on, on that tour. And so I'm at John Stamos's barbecue and I'm sitting there and this woman comes up to me with her friends and she's like, oh my God, we saw you at the Pantages. You were hilarious. My husband loves you. So the husband comes over, and this is how hot, this is a real Hollywood story. The husband comes over, and he's like, dude, you're, he, and he's like one of these guys who, yeah, my wife dragged me over to see this guy, to see Sebastian. I'm sitting there, and you blew me away. And listen, man, I'm in the business. You know, I like to invest in different projects. If you have anything you, you know, you're ever thinking of, you know, let me know. He's a big money real estate guy who wanted to get in the business. I think nothing of it, right? This is just a barbecue at Stamos' house. Connolly calls me like a month, no, no, a couple weeks after that. And he's like, yo, Young, what are you doing with this single mic idea? I love it. If you ever can get some money to shoot something, I'll direct it for you. So I'm like, all right, done. So I email three people. I email Dan. I email my guys in New York. And I email this new friend from Stamos' Barbecue. And I'm like, hey, man, this is going to sound crazy. But based on this little short that I did, and I sent him the short, I said, we're going to make, we're going to shoot a pilot for a TV show, and it costs X dollar, X amount of dollars. And he hits me back, and he's like, I'm in. <laughs> and I'm like, so then I hit him back, and I'm like, well, you don't have to be in for the whole budget, but you could well have partners, and you don't have to put all the money in it. He writes back, that's too low of a, a dollar amount for me to even have a partner. I don't even need a partner. I don't want a partner, but thank you. I swear, Jeff, this is what happened. I, I need so some friends like you have friends. <laughs> yeah, so Jeff, so, yeah, so I'm thinking, I'm literally thinking, okay, this guy thinks that I'm somebody else. He thinks that I'm called, he must forgot. He must have forgot. There's no way that this random person who saw me one time is going to finance my pilot. I write back one more time. I'm like, okay, are you sure? Because 
you can just, you, you could have partners. This is what a return on your investment looks like. I have my lawyer draw it up. So I tell the guy, here's, I have my lawyer drop a return on investment. The guy says to me, I'm leaving for, he emails me. I haven't even talked to him physically. There's been no talking. It's all in an email. Send me your wiring information. I'm going to Cabo on Friday. I'll wire you the money on Monday. I'm in. So now 100% I'm thinking he thinks I'm somebody else, but I'm definitely going to give him the wiring information for whatever he wants to send. So I send him my, my wiring information. And on Monday, I'm too scared to like look at the bank account. And around three or four o'clock in the afternoon, I, I go onto my, my business account and there's like a hundred and some thousand dollars that he put into my account. And I called my line producer immediately. Like immediately, I said, "Dude, we need to back this budget into a hundred grand. We're making a pilot." I called Connolly. He's like, "No way, bro. Shut up. There's no way that happened. You're uh, bullshit. Blah blah blah. Take a picture of your account and send it to me." And so I take a snapshot of my account. I send it to him. Game on. And just like an independent movie, we started casting. Who the f is Mike Young? We shot it. It's an amazing cast. So it will live on Ficto for a short period of time. But Ficto is an app that you just download onto your phone and you can watch Who the F is Mike Young. And we're going to take it to, to some other places and kind of try to blow it up and, and get a season out of something. So it was an incredible experience. It's really fun and funny. I'm super proud of it. It stars Chelsea Kane, Jessica Van, Abby Cobb, Bob Saget, Adam Shapiro. Great cast. And we just, we casted it like a movie and we just had casting sessions and that was it. Stevie Gutman, who was in a couple in my, in a stand-up guy. He's great. Plays my, one of my best friends in the movie. It's an exploration of the single life in LA trying to find myself. Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Uh, I don't want to give anything away, but this, the scene where you're wearing red wings, sweatshirt yeah. or the yeah. hoodie. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's like, it's all, it's like eight minute shows i mean they're short everybody so it's like you can uh you can catch them all real quick and they string together real fun so that's awesome hey how can people find you or follow you on social media i'm the real mike young on instagram and then you can always go to my youtube channel which is mike young's comedy channel and then on twitter i'm real mike young mike thank you so much i can't i can't thank you enough for spending some time with me thanks for having me jeff that was so much fun talking to Mike. I've had so many good times doing comedy with Mike Young. I can't even begin to tell you. He's a joy. He's hilarious. Please, everyone, check out his movies. A stand-up guy. My man is a loser. Adam. His short series called Who the F is Mike Young on Ficto app. These are all so great. He's so funny. He's got comedy albums out there. Search those out. Get as much Mike Young into your life as you possibly can. I promise you, you won't regret it. Dr. Dwoskin says, get some Mike Young in your life. All right. Well, you know what time it is. It's time for the hashtag roundup. Hashtag of the week. That's right. That's where we pick a hashtag game from hashtag roundup on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Get the free hashtag roundup app and play along. And one day, one of your tweets might end up on live from Detroit. It's the Jeff Dewaskin show. That's right. You may go on to fame and fortune as you're read aloud on my show. This week's special hashtag comes to you from Catterday Funny. That's right. Cat Funny brings us hashtag signs you're single. The funniest hashtag in the world 
about being single. All these tweeters will be retweeted at Jeff Dwoskin Show, and they'll also be listed in the show notes, so you can go show them some love. All right, put on your seatbelt. It's time for hashtag signs you are single. Your phone and TV remote have their own side of the bed. You cover your wine glass with a chocolate wrapper to keep out the cat hair. No one corrects you about the way you hang the toilet paper. These are some great hashtag signs you are single. Your cat is the only one that has access to all your passwords. Meow. It hasn't rained men in years. And you blame climate change. They know you as meal for one guy at Walmart. The Jehovah Witnesses just want to be on their way, but you won't stop talking to them. (laughs) And finally, you finished Netflix. Congratulations. All right. Those were awesome. Those were so great. Check out all those tweets at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Give them all a retweet. Play along at hashtag Roundup, and you could be on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. I can't thank you enough for stopping by for week 38. Can you believe it? 38 weeks we've been together. This is incredible. I thank you for being with me every step of the journey. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, tell your friends, sign up for my mailing list, and then re-listen to every episode just to make sure you didn't miss anything. And I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.